For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out what Marcus Doe and his organization called We Reconcile are doing to help adult children reunite with estranged fathers. And hear the story of a Holocaust survivor from the former Soviet Union. It's part of the AZPM Living History Project called Children of the Holocaust. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Fatherlessness is a domestic situation that is often the cause of many negative outcomes for families and individuals. These estranged relationships can cause lifelong rifts that often expand and threaten the mental and emotional well-being of everyone involved. In response to what he was seeing in the communities around him, and based on his own volatile life experience, Marcus Doe spent years learning about the complexities that surround the issue of fatherlessness. Doe is now the founder and CEO of We Reconcile, a nonprofit dedicated to helping reunite absent fathers with their children. Our mission statement is to repair and prevent uh, fatherlessness by bringing separated adult children and their fathers together uh, through a healing journey of forgiveness and reconciliation in order to disrupt the generational cycle of emotional, social, and relational discord that exists. Give me some of your impressions of fatherlessness as a concept, what that does to a family and what that does to a young man who's growing and developing. It seems as though that has become the norm uh, to an extent where fathers are missing. I lost my dad when I was uh, 11 years old. But when I arrived in the States, I sat with friends, the friends that I made in high school, uh, most of whom didn't have their dads. And I recognized that they didn't, not only did they not have their dads, but they were antagonistic towards their fathers. And it was a hurt. There was a confusion there. There was just an inability to, to kind of reconcile what was happening. Why didn't their fathers uh, want them was the kind of overarching question. I'm so sorry to hear about the tragedy of, of what happened to your family in Liberia and losing your father. But when you look back at the relationship that you were able to have with him, what stands out to you? And now, even as a father yourself, you know, what, what do you think that you took from that too brief relationship? My father uh, was my hero. He was very sensitive, uh, very, I think, educationally or academically wanted us to do the best we could. Uh, my father had a very stressful job, but he didn't uh, let that stand between him and his kids. There were six of us. He was a great role model. He took us to things to expose us to the world. Uh, when foreign ships would come into Liberia, he would take us to see them, uh, different leaders, different things. He, he exposed me to Martin Luther King, Jesse Owens, Abraham Lincoln, uh, just several other international things. My father loved to read Latin. So he was a great father. And, 
and losing him was like losing the gravity in my world. And at the same time, you came to the United States. Is that right? Yes, I came to the United States as a refugee when I was 13 years old, uh, two years after my father was killed in civil war. So making this incredible transition in your life and not having your father there. I like what you said about gravity. That makes a lot of sense. Yes. I think mothers in this country, everywhere in the world, do a wonderful job of keeping loving and nurturing their children. But there's a role that a father plays that when that role is absent, especially a biological father, it can set a a child with a lot of questions. A trajectory that we see in our society uh, negative social outcomes can mostly be traced back to fatherlessness in our culture. On behalf of, of We Reconcile, you told me that you were at a public event recently and that you were recruiting that day looking for fathers who wanted to take part in the We Reconcile Families program. So I'd like to know what that's like when you're um, you know, at, a, at an event, you're sitting there at the table, you're welcoming people to come over and talk about perhaps one of the most difficult subjects that they could possibly talk about in their lives. Can you give us some idea of how some of those encounters might go when you meet a father who wants to reconcile or is just curious about the program? Whenever I talk to a father who is interested in applying for the program or who has has been separated or estranged from their children, and I start to explain it. At first, there is a sense of, can I trust this man? Can I trust this program? Well, here's what we do. We help reestablish uh, connections between fatherless adults and their fathers. We do this through a four-module process. The first module helps define the family history, the triggers and trauma that people have gone through being separated as, as family members. We do that individually with clinical counselors. So the father meets with a clinical counselor and the adult child meets with a clinical counselor. And as they walk through that process, they're able to begin to anticipate what it would look like to reestablish a connection. A word you use to describe that stage is reimagine. Yes. And that really speaks to me because we are so comprised of the stories that we tell ourselves. And if we look back at a childhood incident or childhood trauma, that can become a myth of its own creation in a way over the years. And so when you're talking about adult children, they may be living with uh, negative feelings surrounding an event that may not even be remembered by the father. And so reimagining how we go about restructuring this internal mythology we build for ourselves is fascinating to me. As they sit with a counselor, yeah, what does it look like? What can it look like? to see my dad in a different light or for him to hear his side of the story or for him to to reach out and reconnect with me. And, and as an adult, I'm sure I'm able to handle the, con- the, the conversation to help them develop an emotional awareness of the possibility of a relationship with their fathers again. And that's deep and that's, that's hard. And there's a lot of hurt there. But we have counselors who are willing to walk through that healing journey in order to get them prepared to meet each other. I think about the impacts that a bad relationship or a estranged relationship between an adult and their father, how that can translate into something that undercuts their confidence all the time at every stage. But then I also look at fathers who may now be middle-aged. What has it done to their confidence? The tendency is to blame the father, but it maybe the estrangement wasn't the father's fault, right? 
there could be many factors that could have played into that. There are many, many factors that can play into that. And, and it does feel like like an elephant in the room of people's lives that they haven't dealt with, they want to deal with, but they don't have a path to get to it. I'll tell you a story. Uh, in the summer of 2020, one of my great friends, we've been friends for 15 years, and I didn't know this about him. I was at home. We were all at home. And I asked him, can we take a walk? And I told him about this program that I was thinking of starting. And he, he just stopped me in the middle of talking. He said, I'm one of those children. My dad walked away 37 years ago, and what you're going to do is going to turn over a lot of emotional turmoil in people's lives. But he was actually very sympathetic towards his father. He said, you know, I don't know my dad. I don't know his story. I don't know the side of it. I don't want anything from him. I just want to get to know the guy and understand his his perspective, why he left. I, I, he said he did have some anger towards his father, and he was able to actually, didn't wait for my program to get started, bought a ticket and flew across the country, met his father, and sat across from him in a, in a park and, and recorded the conversation as he and his father went through 37 years of being apart. And that conversation that he sent me with his father's permission just made me melt. It, it was exactly what I, I saw the program evolving into kind of over the period of time that we will have people in the program, whether the father steps up and admits a wrongdoing and the son or daughter is able to come alongside of them and they decide to reimagine, like I said, a new path forward. It's a very emotional story and it's a very emotional thing that we're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Well, let's skip ahead to, to stage two, uh, reconciliation. And you referred to this uh, as the mountain climb part. The most interesting part of this, I think, involves doing a retreat yeah. with the participants. And you talk about conversations with a therapist over four days. Yeah. Um, doing four days of conversation with a therapist, that, uh, that, that seems like a really big ask, even of people who might have, a, say, an uninterrupted relationship with their father. This is the most exciting part of the whole thing. Uh, we, at, at that point, before they go on a four-day uh, retreat, they have spent six months journaling and imagining the conversation and reconciliation. And we've gotten to the point where they've developed emotional awareness of the possibility of a relationship. And when we get them to that as away from society for four days and their counselors are with them, they're familiar with the counselor, not only do they have those conversations, but they're also, we've designed that week or that four days where they're doing things side by side. And we know that men tend to be more conversational when they're engaged in something with their hands. So there are art projects, there are, there are sports if they want to do that. There are different things or hikes and different activities that they're doing in the days that they're there, but they're able to have these conversations um, in the evenings with, with the counselor and walk through stage by stage. They've been journaling, possibly writing each other letters. So this is not the first kind of face-to-face -face encounter. I have a friend who's a professor, uh, adjunct professor in at the University of Denver. And he, he specializes in doing healing trauma through West African drumming. And he is going to facilitate some of those sessions. By the end of that week, they will be able to communicate using those drums. And that's beautiful. And then let's quickly touch on the last two steps in the four-step process that uh, We Reconcile Families offers. And that's renew and redefine. So in the renew portion, they have returned home uh, from the retreat. And at this point, it switches from being individual counseling to counseling together once or twice a month, depending on the regularity that they're able to do. And they're ho we're hoping to 
teach them skills in communications, uh, conflict management, and communicating their thoughts and feelings about each other in a way that is meaningful so that each person hears what is clearly said and is able to re reword what the other person has said. Um, we give them tools at this point to rebuild their relationship. They may spend time by themselves together um, understanding what it's like to have you back in my life to whatever extent I want to have you back in my life. They get to, they get to that point. Um, I'm drifting into the redefine at this point. They get to the point where they're, they're thinking through, Hey, is my father just going to come for Thanksgiving and I'm just going to call him on father's day. And that's as far as our relationship is going to go. Or are we going to go to ball games together? Is he going to come and meet perhaps his grandkids or what is that relationship going to look like? They help determine that. They redefine what that relationship is going to look like. Because I, I think that at, at that point in life, when you're a father, maybe you're 60, 70, you, you, you're starting to figure out, I don't have that many more years life. I want to invest into, into my children that didn't have the chance to do that for years and years. So I think the anticipation of that is also, is on the dad. There's a feeling of, oh man, I've missed out on so many things. Can I, can I give away some wisdom here and there to my newly redefined relationship. A lot of people hearing you define this program will go, well, hey, that sounds great. And if I had an infinite amount of money, this might be something that I could engage with. But there's no way that this is going to be affordable to me. But we reconcile, we haven't mentioned this yet, is a nonprofit organization. We reconcile as a nonprofit in the state of Arizona, and we will pay for your counseling and the travel to the retreat and take care of your meals and, and meetings and things like that. We want to we wanna remove every barrier uh, that, that will hamper you in order that you can reconcile with your, with your son or daughter. Because I think society is better uh, when, when families are reconciled. I spoke with Marcus Doe, founder and CEO of ReReconcile.org. Links for more information, including video of a TED Talk given by Doe, are posted now on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. International Holocaust Remembrance Day is observed on January 27th. Between 1941 and 1945, Germany's Nazi regime murdered two-thirds of Europe's Jewish population. Of the six million Jews who were victims of the genocide known as the Holocaust, an estimated 1.5 million were children. Against all odds, some of these children managed to survive. Children of the Holocaust is a living history project launched by AZPM. Project producer Laura Markowitz interviewed 19 child survivors of the Holocaust who now live in Southern Arizona. Now we will hear the story of Ida Kvartovskaya, her husband, Oyser Kvardovsky, and their daughter, Raisa Moroz. Raisa will be our translator. Please be aware that this story contains descriptions of the attempted genocide of the Jewish people and may not be suitable for all listeners. You might assume a Holocaust survivor is someone who experienced concentration camps or hid in an attic like Anne Frank. But there were hundreds of thousands of Jewish people who escaped the Nazis by going east into the former Soviet Union. And the Jewish people who were already living there had to evacuate their homes when the German army occupied their cities, towns, and villages. They became refugees, fleeing with nothing but the clothes on their backs. 
After the war, Jews who were trapped behind the Iron Curtain endured decades of state-sanctioned anti-Semitism. My name is Raisa Maros. I was born in Magilov, Belarus. As a Jew in the Soviet Union, she was barred from certain jobs and passed over for promotions. It was government policy to treat Jews as second-class citizens. People on the streets would say, just leave. It's not your place. Your place is at Tel Aviv. My brother, he went to get bananas for his son. And policemen stopped him and asked him to provide his passport. And he provided the passport. And in our passport, it said that he's Jewish. And he was punched just because he's Jewish. The Soviet Union collapsed in the early 1990s. There was a mass exodus of Jews. Jewish Family and Children's Services of Southern Arizona resettled more than a thousand Jews from the former Soviet Union, including Moroz and her extended family. She started working for the agency, and it was there, at the age of 33, that she learned about the Holocaust. I didn't know the word Holocaust until we came here. There were no awareness in the Soviet Union about Holocaust. We knew that Russians were killed during the war. We never knew that war was against the Jewish people. And many of the people who were in concentration camps or fled would not even talk about it or would not provide this information to anybody, including their friends and family members, because they were too scared. People would go to the prison because they would be called as Nazis helpers if somebody would know that they were captured somewhere. Jewish Family and Children's Services receives funding provided by the German government to offer home care and other services to Holocaust survivors. And I saw Holocaust survivors come into the agency. So I actually went to the COO of Jewish family at that point, and I said, why we have all these Holocaust survivors from all over the world, but we are not providing any services for Holocaust survivors from former Soviet Union? And she was like, is there such a thing as Holocaust survivors from former Soviet Union? According to the German government, there is. They define Holocaust survivor as a Jew who lived in territories occupied by the Nazis during World War II. This question was a personal one for Moroz. So, so my dad, Oyster Kwartowski, he was born in Kizil. It is part of Russia. It's where his family evacuated. So his parents were both from Vilna, Poland, and they actually fled to former Soviet Union in uh, 1939 first. And then they had to flee again in 1941 when the war started in the former Soviet Union. During the evacuation, they lost their only child. Then when they were working in mine uh, while in, evac in evacuation, and my dad was born there. In 1943, 
he is not eligible for compensation from the German government as a Holocaust survivor because he wasn't living in an area occupied by Nazis. Some might say that seems like a technicality, considering how many of his family members were murdered by the Nazi regime. We believe most of them perished in Holocaust. Moroz's mother, does fit the official definition of Holocaust survivor. Ida Kvartovskaya was born in Mogilev, Belarus in 1939. The German army laid siege to her city beginning on June 22, 1941. Ida, her parents, and six of her siblings hid in the forest for two days. They returned home and her father scrambled to find a way to get them out before the city's defenses fell to the Nazis. So when Nazis came to former Soviet Union, they had no time, no power to build concentration camps or to send people to Germany or Poland where they built concentration camps. They were just liquidating people as they go. They create a special command called the Einsatzgruppen. They were tasked with killing as many Jews as possible. They used a variety of brutal methods. One way it's what happened uh, on Babi Yar, somewhere at the end of September 1941, for just two days, they killed with machine guns at least 28 or 30,000 Jewish people. There were villages that Nazis would come, get Jewish people in barns, and put the fire in. And the entire village will be killed. Only people who were able to flee survived. I know that in our country, in Belarus, where we're from, 90% of all Jewish people died during the Holocaust. Like, my mom's family had almost zero chance to survive. Ida's father asked their Gentile neighbor to drive them in his carriage to the train station. The neighbor agreed, but demanded all their belongings in exchange for the ride. Ida's family was evacuated on a freight train. It went into the Ural Mountains. The journey took weeks. The train stopped at various towns, and her father traded what they had left for food. My mom died. She had pneumonia during the evacuation, and she died. Ida had an infant sister. She died soon after from starvation. So there were 10 children in the family. The oldest sister was 17 at the time when her mom died. Until she was in her 50s, Ida Kvartovskaya had no idea 
that the Nazis had been targeting Jewish people. I was too young, I didn't understand anything. And, and again, back in Russia, we were not taught about that. We had no idea about six million Jews. When your mother found out, did she think if we hadn't been evacuated, they would have taken me? She said, yes, I, I've been thinking about it, especially at night when you don't, you cannot get, you cannot fall asleep. What are those thoughts? Thanks God that we survived and thanks God that our kids not in danger, it's what she thinks. She hopes it will continue to be true. There's been a rise in anti-Semitism around the country. Even in Tucson, synagogues, the Jewish Community Center, and the Jewish Museum have to employ armed guards. A 2022 survey by the Anti-Defamation League found that 85% of Americans believe at least one anti-Jewish trope. 20% of Americans believe six or more. This is the highest level of anti-Semitism in decades. As Rabbi Jonathan Sachs wrote, Jews cannot fight anti-Semitism alone. The victim cannot cure the crime. The hated cannot cure the hate. The only people who can successfully combat anti-Semitism are those active in the cultures that harbor it. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. Raisa Moroz now serves as Program Manager of Services for Holocaust survivors at Jewish Family and Children's Services. She compiled a book called To Tell Our Stories that contains the accounts of 81 survivors. It's also available in Russian. To listen to more stories of survival from Arizona Public Media's Children of the Holocaust Project, visit azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This is a production of AZPM. Music by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance from Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.